Hello! Thanks for downloading this podcast. Just a quick note to say that we've changed the name from Fight Back to the next round. We think the new title gives a more future-facing angle to our conversations with marketing and business leaders as they chat to us about the next round for their businesses. Enjoy this episode and make sure to subscribe. We're planning Series 3 now and it should be with you later this year. This is Fight Back, the innovation podcast. Hello and welcome to Fight Back. I'm your host, Robin Charney. Fightback is a business innovation podcast where I get to hear the stories of those doing what I think is the hardest job in corporate innovation today, transforming heritage businesses. Today, my guest is a real trailblazer, and our story is going to be about what happens when you have an ambitious CEO, a curious new MD, and a marketing guy who moves into a shed. It's going to be fascinating. My guest started his career at P&G as a brand marketeer, moved into financial services at the height of the credit crunch, and now leads HomeServe Labs as CEO. HomeServe Labs is an innovation lab from within the HomeServe group. They invented LeakBot. LeakBot is a smart water leak prevention system designed specifically for home users. Welcome, Craig Foster. Nice to be here, Robin. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. First off the bat, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what HomeServe is all about and what fight you're in. So who is disrupting you? So HomeServe, for context, is a 25-year-old company founded in the UK by a guy called Richard Harpin, who's still the group chief exec. He's my boss. And um, his original insight was 25 years ago, if you wanted to find a plumber, you were taking a bit of a risk just by getting out. Do you remember the yellow pages? I do. I'm that old, Craig. I do remember the yellow pages. So for the millennials, that's how you used to find a plumber. And he realised it was a bit of a bit of a risk. So he had this idea that what if you offered a service branded under the water companies and um, you paid a subscription and then you could access a plumber when you needed it, when something went wrong. And that idea worked. He signed up all the water companies in the UK and then he expanded that model across Europe into the US. Fast forward now, like businesses in lots and lots of sectors, there's a whole range of different tech trends that have a potentially you know, huge disruptive effect on, on that business. The growth of mobile and the way people access services today has changed. There's lots of platform businesses. Then there's also the Internet of Things. So if you imagine you know, a boiler, for example, when that's connected to the Internet and someone remotely can see the fault code on that system before the homeowner can, that's going to change the way that people access kind of repair services. So there's kind of lots of trends that over time, you know, will fundamentally shift that that industry and like any big corporate you look at those trends and you think well do we kind of put our heads in the sand and people don't think that's what they're doing but do you kind of you know lie to yourselves around this is going to take ages we're going to be fine we understand the market better than anyone else you know these small players never going to really make a difference or there's another way of doing it which is you look at those trends and think how can we turn that from a threat into an opportunity and try and disrupt our own business from from within. So it wasn't somebody else coming to, you know, into your marketplace as such. It was technology and you kind of saw the opportunity that technology was going to offer and you've almost decided to disrupt yourselves rather than waiting for somebody else to come kind of sideswipe you. You can learn from other industries. So I think if you look at, you know, the music industry, for example, it's, it's amazing looking at the case studies about the reactions of those boards at the time and they made all those mistakes you know they just never thought something like Napster would ever really catch on you could just look and then they just thought they understood their industry their consumers better than anyone else they said we're in the record industry they're in a different business to us we make records 
And um, so I think as time's gone on, I think fintech generally has maybe been a bit different. There's a bit more humility maybe. And um, yeah, it's, it's clear in, in HomeServe's core business, a lot of these things haven't really disrupted the business yet. You know, there's been lots of startups. None of them have become huge. The same as the Internet of Things. You know, it's happening, but it's not everybody's got a connected boiler at the moment. But I think these trends, they grow exponentially and they have a way, if you don't do anything, they have a way of sneaking up on you. You got on the front foot back in 2014 by setting up the Innovation Lab, didn't you? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the journey to setting that up? It was an odd journey, actually. So it was a there was a guy called um, Martin Bennett, who was previously the group CFO, and he was taking a role as the new UK chief executive. The board asked him if there's anything he'd like to do in preparation for taking over as CEO. So he said he would like to go on a learning sabbatical. He went on a whole bunch of different business school courses, went to London Business School and Harvard for a bit, and then he did something called a a uh, digital disruption masterclass at Hyper Island. I think the rest of the business was terrified about a finance guy going on courses about disruption and innovation and product and marketing. So I got a call and they basically said, can you just go with him, keep him company and make sure he doesn't come back with crazy ideas? Obviously, history has suggested that we did not go to plan. <laughs> <laughs> So you were babysitting, essentially, making well, sure he didn't do anything too wild. Yeah, of course. So it <laughs> totally went the other way. Mm. So, you know. So what happened? I, well, I went on the course. I just found the whole thing humbling and really exciting. So it went the opposite way. So every day ended with Martin and I in the hotel, you know, writing things on the back of napkins. What was the thing that humbled you and surprised you the most? I remember a particular analogy that they showed about this. I can't remember what type of fish it was. It was like this huge kind of trout or something. And um, they put a glass jar over the fish and then they put all these little guppy fish around it. And this big fish is going crazy, trying to eat the little fish. The amazing thing is after a while, the big fish just gets exhausted and just sits there. And then they lift the glass bowl up off the big fish. And these little fish just swimming past, right past his nose. And the big fish forever sits there. We'll never, ever try again because he's just learned that, well, this is the way things are. You can't eat the little fish. And the point was that lots of us in our careers can get stuck in this way. And I realised that uh, this was true of me. I thought I understood our industry really well. I thought I understood who our competitors were, who our consumers were, the products that we sold. I thought I knew what business we were in. We just got challenged so many times around, well, do you really know? Do you really know? What is the value that you ultimately provide your consumers and then we got asked to think a lot about different technology trends and where the winds of change were blowing. And can you imagine how the, this value could be delivered in a different way in the future? And once you start to reframe your thinking in that way, you realise that your consumer of the future might be very different and your competitive set could be totally different. You might even think they're in a different business to you, but if they deliver the value through a different means, then they are your, your biggest threat. So you realised through that process what business you were actually in and it wasn't the one you thought you were in? We had a big argument in the bar, Martin and I, about what business we were in. <laughs> After like three gin and tonics, we just weren't sure anymore. Did people stare? Yeah, I think so. Well, the, fun, the funny thing was when we got back to the office, we sent a survey out to the top 100 management across the company and we said, what business do you think we're in? Goodness. <laughs> Everyone had a different thing. You know, so many different responses. And we, we actually came to the conclusion, well, we're in the home assistance business and we're really all about making that effortless for the, for the end consumer because all of these things, they go wrong. You don't want them to go wrong. You just want things to get back, back to normal. But the big aha was really we just processed how much the Internet of Things was going to impact the business over the long run. 
you said that IoT was going to be the huge opportunity for HomeServe. So can you maybe just talk us through quickly why you think IoT is your biggest opportunity? Well, it's really the, the, the flip side of that, really. If you get it right, then you can turn that into a massive opportunity. It's about using the competitive strengths that you've got and working out how to apply them in, into a new world. The first thing that we did in the lab was we started partnerships with companies like Nest. Mm-hmm. And um, to start with, you figure out, well, what value have we really got to offer? So a company like Nest, they were launching the thermostat into the UK, but they needed an installation network. You know, UK houses are different. They needed to find a way to get it done. So one of the first things we did, we set up an installation network for Nest so we could partner with them just as a way in to start to build our own knowledge and forge these types of partnerships that HomeServe were not used to having. Just take a step back. So you got back from this amazing trip with Martin and you've decided to set up the Innovation Lab. How did you pitch that internally? How did you get buy-in and what did Richard say? We learned through that experience why big companies find it so hard to, to, to innovate. You can see the same pattern over and over, and over again. And um, What are the top three things? Well, the, the things like, the obvious things are, you know, big functional silos. Mm. So any kind of new business model innovation normally requires different functions. You need a bit of technology, a bit of product development, some service operations, customer service support, financial engineering sometimes, different types of commercial models. If you're working in a big organisation where those functions are siloed, it's very difficult to do that kind of cross-functional innovation. Um, And then I think the other thing that really always stuck in my my mind was um, even if you come up with something different, if an organisation's got a well-tuned business model, it almost has its own kind of gravitational pull. Mm. There was a great, great phrase in a book called The First Mile um, called the sucking sound of the core. <laughs> and it's basically this idea that even if you come up with something new and different, if you try and launch it, little bits of it will slowly turn into the core business model just because that's the path of least resistance. Well, it's the gravitational pull yeah. of what you know. It's the least change, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it actually, that all adds up to, to it being really difficult to, to do something. Even the way these things are often managed in big companies, processes, you know, compliance that's there for good reason for a mature, established business. Oh, absolutely. And lots of the interviews we've had, you know, that, that compliance aspect, that how do you do you take something away from the core in order to give it room to breathe and flourish? Or do you build from the inside is a kind of innovator's dilemma, isn't it? Because you kind of have to choose your path. But you chose the car park, didn't you? The way that we did it <laughs> is um, we kind of learned from all of that. And the good thing, I think the thing that was kind of unique and hard to copy about this experience is just the fact that Martin and I did all of that stuff together. So he heard all the same things. So in that respect, it was very easy to set it up when we got back because Martin heard the same stuff and he said, OK, it's clear what we need to do. Set up a team. I'll give you some money. Pick some people. And I will give you a really broad remit, which is, you know, the Internet of Things going to have a big impact on our business. Go figure out how that's an opportunity f- for us. And then within that, we'll kind of give you a lot of free reign. So we'll protect you from the rest of the senior management. So Richard is an out-and-out entrepreneur through to the bone. So he loved this whole idea to start with. But we originally, we were doing this off the side of our desk. So we picked a few people and we are doing it as a side project in addition to our uh, day jobs. I remember one particular meeting, we were giving Richard an update. And Richard, Richard never really gets angry. He's not that type of CEO, but you could tell, you could sense his frustration and his close as he ever does to banging the table. And he kind of said to us, you know, no one created a billion dollar company off the side of their desk. So you guys, if you're serious, you need to quit your day jobs. 
we need to put you in a shed in the car park and you need to make this your whole thing. Um, so that really gives something to think about. At that moment, did you think, hmm, yeah, I can't <laughs> do, going, I, do oh, I want to move to the car park or yeah. or do I want to carry on on my full side of the desk job? Well, it's, it's actually, I've since realised this is actually a, a, an important point in corporate innovation because you can go through the motions of your steady career, you know your next promotion, whereas innovation is inherently risky. And at least in genuine startup entrepreneurship, you're... Um, you know, you've got the the dream, at least, of the, the big payoff. Whereas this felt like all downside risk. It was basically, <laughs> if it goes wrong, you get fired. Mm. If it goes well, you've you, got a weird CV. You get to keep your job. <laughs> you get to keep mm. your job and you've got a strange CV. Mm. But yeah, so against my better judgment, we did it anyway. There's an amazing acceleration that happens if you put a team of six people literally in a room together with nothing else to do all day other than work on this one project together. That... and You've got your own space. You don't need to worry about booking meeting rooms. I mean, that is a curse in big companies, you know, just finding a meeting room. <laughs> just having your own space with whiteboards and you're literally, you've got some budget, you can do your own thing. That does give you the pace of a startup if you if you go about it in the right way. That sounds amazing. What a luxury. Talk to me a little bit about the team because you said you're, you were six people when you started. What kinds of people were you looking for on this team? How did you choose who to have on the team? What kind of skills were really important? Well, I think in the early days, it was a lot about kind of proposition and business model innovation. So it was, you were looking for people who had some kind of product, already some kind of like innovative experience. At the very beginning, it was all kind of homegrown. So it was all people that we recruited from in, inside the business. There's a downside to that if you're doing it with internal people, because you don't get the benefit of anyone with a really external view kind of pushing you. How many are you now? Um, it's almost uh, 50 people, if you include the plumbers that are out on the road. What skills did you add on later on? What were the kind of skill sets you thought, actually, we do need this now? And have you decided to build from the inside or do you use partners and things to build out some of the propositions or some of the MVPs and things like that? So, um, yeah, we've done lots of different things along the way. So the very early phase of the lab, when it was in the purest form an innovation mm-hmm. lab, was... Um, we, we were, I think we were quite unusual in terms of we didn't want to just outsource things to an innovation agency, which you can do, you know, mm. give them a brief and they'll go off and do this thing. We wanted to do the customer interviews. You know, we wanted to put the propositions in front of people and do the research and do all of that ourselves. But when it came to start the technical build and starting to test, you know, minimum viable versions of the product to put into test, you know, we just used different agencies to do things like that in the very early phase. But then, the, you know, I think anything like this, is a bit of a shapeshifter. You know, you go through different phases and I think you've got to start it with an open mind as to where it will take you. Because in the end, what happened with us is we had like seven different projects. We had this crazy leak detector project on the side. So Leakbuck was your was your side hustle to your side hustle. Yeah, it was de- definitely. I, all, everything we were doing was in connected heating and okay. we were trying to figure out how do we put our services into other people's platforms. We're partnering with different uh, tech firms in that space. Okay. And it was. I think it was a question from Richard. He said to us, well, you know, what about plumbing? We've got millions of people with plumbing policies and we've got, you know, thousands of plumbers around the world. Is that going to be connected to the internet in the same way as heating? And um, so we we went out and tested a few of the products that were on the market, but it was a totally different landscape to heating. You know, a company like Nest, you use that thermostat, it was just a great product Mm. and they had loads of traction. You went and tried to look for leak detection technology 
And it was just not very good, you know, because as a company... Not as sexy as Nest. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not sexy, but it actually wasn't even functional. Mm. I mean, because at home, so the heritage is in plumbing. So we know a lot about leaks. And everything on the market was either a moisture sensor that you just put somewhere in anticipation, if you've got a crystal ball, of where your leak will happen in the future. Or you've got these kind of plumbed-in systems where you cut the pipe, and it, but they're expensive and it requires a professional install. So we went a different route. Um, There was a friend of a friend who was a kind of PhD, Oxbridge, boffin, like inventor type, frighteningly intelligent. And we gave him the brief. We just said, can you think of a way that you could post something, clip it to a pipe, and it could detect a leak anywhere on a mains water system? And um, so he put a Raspberry Pi in a big box. It had all these wires sticking out of it. And he was testing all these different, like, known ways of doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, but nothing really was sensitive enough. But um, after a few weeks, he, ca- he came up with this idea. And he said, you know, I, th- I think I've, I'm onto something. Um, but it was his own idea. And so we tested it. It seemed to work. But then we just couldn't find anything to do with it. <laughs> it was a weird <laughs> thing. So our idea was, well, we'll give this to HomeServe customers who've got plumbing insurance. And what we found is they just weren't really interested. HomeServe's demographic of the customers quite elderly, actually, um, so, so it kind of, that was it. That was the death of the. Yeah, that was it. It was the, like a new idea. Yeah, it was a bit. Yeah, it was a solution in the search of a problem, really. So it yeah. sat sat on the shelf for a while. And then what happened? Back in the days when we was in the shed, they used to the company used to like to wheel people through. This is they're here, the cool kids, and this is where the cool stuff. So happens. you had to do your innovation theater dance. So yeah, we did the innovation theater monkey dance. And um, so one particular day, there was a partner called Aviva. I was telling him all about Nest and I'd just got back from a trip to Silicon Valley. I thought it was really cool. They kept saying, yeah, but what about this leak detector? We've heard you've got a leak detector. I was like, don't worry about the leak detector. It doesn't know, work. Nobody wants it. Let me show you it. these amazing you know, app screens that we've just developed. Well, could, could you just tell us about the leak detector? So I got this like dusty box out of the cupboard and was like a bit embarrassed about it and I started explaining it. Really, that was that was how it all started. I mean, that was the st- st- in the end was the start of a massive change of direction. And they couldn't believe it. They they had done the same thing. They had gone and tested the plumbing systems and the moisture sensors. And they'd had the same board meetings going, IoT is going to fundamentally affect insurance. You know, you already could see it in car telematics. Um, But you could see they'd already spotted that there was an obvious use case in home insurance. Uh, Damage caused by leaks is often the biggest cause of claims on, on home insurance. And the thing that I didn't understand then at all was... It's not the massive, sudden, catastrophic escape of water. The vast majority of the claims are small leaks leaking inside a cavity wall, inside a ceiling, and they're causing damage over a long period of time. And so that just so happened, that's exactly the types of leaks that our leak detector was was picking up. That wasn't the use case you thought LeakBot would be used for, did you? No, not at all. No, so it was a, it was a surprise. At least we were smart enough for our ears to pop up a little bit and realise that this was... Um, was was a good opportunity. Amazing. So you started off with Aviva, and then I'm assuming that the other players in that category were also interested in LeakBot. Well, it was it was a funny journey actually, because what happened? We went through again. What I now realise is a pretty archetypal journey for a B two B tech startup. I just didn't know that's what was happening to us at the time. Well, there's no way you could because you were in the moment, weren't you? And everyone kind of learns innovation. In hindsight, don't yeah, they? Yeah. It's only once you've done it and you realise either you read a book or you speak to somebody else, you're like, ah, yeah, actually, that is the way that you do it. But I didn't know that was the way I was going to do it yeah. before I did it, do you? So what is the archetypal journey of B2B that well, you've experienced? Well, what we found is we were going into in insurance companies and we were basically pitching, this is the problem. 
and that resonated with them. Escape of water claims is a huge problem. They can see the Internet of Things had a potential role to play, um, but then the other things on the market weren't nailing that use case for the insurer. Then when you pitched our product, worked in an entirely different way, low-cost unit, could detect a leak anywhere on a mains water system, something you could just mail to a customer, that exactly hit the bullseye. So what we found is it's really easy to sell a trial into the innovation manager or the new propositions guy. Every insurance company's got one of those teams. Well, they were trying to do their own innovation journey, weren't they? So you were basically their outsourced partner. And and I know those guys, right? Because they're like the thing that I set up in the beginning. So I always got on with them. (laughs) You're you're me six months ago. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so I could also help them. Well, this is how you set up a trial. And, you know, so getting the trial going was, was easy. But uh, there's another classic Silicon Valley book, quite an old book called Crossing the Chasm. Oh, yes. I remember by, that. Marketing. By Jeffrey Moore. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's all about this adoption life cycle. That whole book is pointing at this phenomenon in B2B markets, that there's a, there's a chasm that opens up. So we're a case study. So you go in and you sell to the innovation guy. They do a pilot. They think it's great. But then to cross the chasm, as Jeffrey Moore uh, talks about it, to get the early majority... You need the big corporate customers to roll this thing out for real. So the buyer is someone totally different. It's the CEO, the CFO of that corporation. And the insight is they don't care what the innovation guy in their own company says. They don't even listen to that person. They care what are their peer group, the other CEOs in the industry, what are they doing? You know, it's the old idea about you never get fired for buying IBM. It's that mentality like, well, is everyone else doing this? Yeah, there's that and, herd mentality, which I think we're almost in that, aren't we? With We're almost in peak innovation, yeah. aren't we now, where everyone has to talk about it in their perspective. They have to talk about it in their earnings yeah. calls. They have to do podcasts about it. Yeah, so. yeah. And you get caught in this because if, <laughs> yeah. there's, if there's a theme, every board meeting... Uh, there's a lot of this is where innovation theatre comes from. There's mm. lots of boards saying, oh, well, I keep reading in Harvard Business Review that, you know, Internet of Things is a thing or, you know, AI is a thing or a non-exec will ask it, where's our AI project? And then a small budget gets given to someone in the data department. Go, Can you go do an AI project for the board? And those projects kill startups because you waste a lot of time. The challenge is how do you get the first big corporate to do it for real? That's really the... So how'd you do it, Craig? Well, if you read the book, what Jeffrey Moore says, Mm. pick a segment where for some reason you've got the perfect alignment of stars, you know, where Mm. they just want to do it and it's the easiest place to get the business case to stack and you've just got the best best shot. You know, we swallowed that hole and said like a year and a half ago, let's have a go. So found two. So one was uh, high net worth. Um, and then we also weirdly found this quirk in Denmark where the escape water claims are just much, much more severe in Denmark. So we kind of focused on those two and we we had a proposition where, you know, the insurer could give our device for free, even offer the repairs for free and the business model would stack. And we thought, let's see if we can get those one of those over the line, then the theory is the dominoes then f- fall over, which re- really brings us right up to date, which is rolling the product out in Denmark at the moment. So you're in the process of crossing the chasm now. Yeah, you I'd, haven't I'd, crossed it yet. I, you're right in the middle. I would say we're literally clambering up the other side on the wall and on, a, on the D-Day landing. Yeah, I think I think we've made it to the other side, but it's been a, yeah, it's been quite quite a journey. Have you given much thought about how to build the LeakBot brand from a kind of marketing point of view? What we found in the early days is um, although it's really a B2B business, the homeowner's going to want to want one of these things. And what we found is um, in the early days, if you just said, do you want a free leak detector and it's a black box, no one's interested. 
And the amazing thing that we found with LeakBot is we made it look like a consumer tech product. Mm. You know, it, it, it can sit on the shelf in Curry's next to a Nest thermostat and not look out of place. Product design and yeah, UX the, was really important to you. Everything, yeah. the industrial design of the unit, mm-hmm. the packaging, the branding is all you know, of a, of a theme. So your P&G training came in handy. It really did. In yeah, the yeah, end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pro- productizing that whole thing mm-hmm. and branding it, um, you know, makes it really appealing. When I mean, when, a, when one of our partners, if they send an email to their customer base offering one of these things, if they send 100 emails, you know, 30 customers will will take one. So that's it shows amazing that, take-up so, rate, isn't it? Yeah, when it, when it shows when, you know, when it's essentially, you know, quite a boring thing. I mean, people are not really interested in Leak, leak detection. You're making it very interesting. So talk to me a little bit about your best day in innovation. There's a big um, show called DIA, which is a really well-attended kind of insurance kind of tech conference uh, in Amsterdam. I was invited to speak on the main stage, been able to demo the product in front of a few thousand people and um, talk about the actual business case and talk about the traction that we've got with some of the partners. It really felt like a kind of coming of age moment for everything that the team's been working on. Um, and then we also won, a, won an award for the presentation. Um, take your crystal ball out. We're going to look into the future. Where do you think the race for the connected home is going to end or who's going to win? Where do you see that whole connected home going? Because it feels pretty endless at the moment. It's pretty vast, isn't it? I'll give you a horizon. Let's say five years. Tricky question. I think predicting the future is always... Yeah, it's, I won't it's, hold uh, you to it, I promise. Yeah, it's a tough question. If you look at what's been holding things back... It's who's the platform that can kind of string these things together. Mm. You know, there's lots of been lots of sideshows and lots of other companies trying to do this, trying to stitch their own portfolio of products together. But obviously, it's always going to be one of the big players. So I think it's just looking across between uh, Apple and Google and Amazon and looking at their respective strategies. It's just quite interesting to see how they're all playing it. Early on, I would have probably said Apple had a you know, a good chance of doing mm. this just because they, they have got such a good track record of the integration of hardware and software and creating a really good user experience. And they're accepted in people's homes almost without question, aren't Already, they? Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know if I don't know if it's the post-Steve Jobs problem or what it is, but they just seem to have made, they've made it really hard to get Apple HomeKit registered. You actually got to change the chipset inside the product. That makes it difficult. Okay. And also, I think the thing that's held Apple back is just they have not got the same AI and voice capabilities that Google and Amazon mm. have got. You know, Siri, I think, widely accepted. It's not as good as the as the other two. So you think it's going to be somebody who exists today? Absolutely, yeah. I think well, I think it's between Amazon and Google for sure. Fair enough. And I think they I think the yeah. thing, the central thing that has emerged is obviously the voice. Uh, control speaker has mm-hmm. become the hub of the the connected home. That's that has become the kind of epicenter of it all. Yeah. So it's a scrap between the two. You know, Amazon had a good start, but I think I, I think right now Google I think are doing a better job of matching up. Since the Nest acquisition, they've got a set of own products. The third party integrations are mm-hmm. quite deliberate. Yes, I don't know. Maybe Google in the in the long run might be okay. more strict. Well, I'll, I'll call you in five years and see if you were right. Two final questions. One: How important is it to you and Richard and Martin that this is a homegrown British innovation hub? That you know you've kind of grown this from scratch in the UK and kind of gone outwards. Because I know Richard has a lot of kind of global ambitions. Um, it's dangerous for me to try to put words into to Richard's mouth. I think yeah, I think everyone's very proud of what we've built. Although I don't know how much of a ringing endorsement it is that um, Richard thinks it's a model because he kind of says, <laughs> he, he tells the story like, we were incredibly lucky this one time, but I'm not sure we should attempt this again. <laughs> so you might not do it again. Well, I think it's interesting. If you look at how Richard, how we're, we're innovating across the company at the moment, we mm-hmm. are, we're doing different things, other labs, um, labs like that. 
but also just through acquisitions. I mean, Richard's got very grand ambitions to become the platform business for trades across a very wide range of trades around the world. Um, because you bought Checker Trade you bought, as well, haven't yeah, you? Bought, yeah, bought Checker Trade last last year, um, and that's becoming kind of a platform that he's replicating in in different countries. So I, I just I don't think um, there is any one right way to do it. I think there's always a set of circumstances that are unique to any one individual context. So um, it all depends what you're trying to do. And no, I agree with you. I think it is very circumstantial, and I don't think most companies know going in what will come out the other side. Yeah, I think you yeah. have to let go. And I think that's one of the hardest things for a lot of heritage businesses is just letting go of a little of control to kind of see what might happen. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, we have essentially created a B2B tech startup. That was definitely not the intention at the beginning. Which leads me to my final question. Did you make the right decision in moving into the shed? Ha! Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a fascinating discussion. I can't wait to get my leak bot and make sure they don't have any leaks throughout the house. But it's been a really good chat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robin. Nice, nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fightback. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and look out for other episodes where we'll speak with more of those leading the fight back in retail, pharma, travel, and other industries at the sharp end of disruption. And if you enjoyed this episode and have any thoughts, comments, please give us a rating and a review. It helps us to be discovered and grow. Tell your friends, colleagues, and feel free to contact me at rcharney on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Fightback is brought to you by AAR. We're a London-based management consultancy helping businesses maximize their partner relationships across marketing and innovation. For more information, visit us at aargroup.co.uk. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of the great people at Something Else. Thanks, guys. See you next time.